Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews and to the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come, and a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, Neither for the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience, from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he, Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant, the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, I'm sure that that's a complicated passage, but I would like to use that as the background for what I trust will be a rather simple and obvious message. You will remember that when the angels came to speak to Mary, the mother of our Lord, and to tell her that she was to conceive and bear a child, she was told that his name was to be Jesus, and the response was, he, he is to be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, there are two ways that you can approach the ministry of Jesus and the coming of Jesus. 
One is as the Savior, in which we speak of him as the one who saves us from our sins. But the other is the broader term, Emmanuel, when we speak of him as the one who came in order that God might be with us. There's very real sense in which you can subordinate everything that Jesus did and was and said to that one end, that God might come to me, that God might be with me. Actually, this is the thrust of the entire scripture from Genesis 3 on, isn't it? You are aware that this is the thing that brings the urgency in our concern for what happened in Genesis 3 when man fell. Because in Genesis 3, man, the likes of you and me, separated himself volitionally, deliberately, willfully from God. And then when he had chosen to separate himself from God, you will remember that he found he had no power to go back. He had the power to leave, but he did not have the power to return. He had the power to sever that relationship, but he did not have the power to restore it. And so, though he did not realize the great tragedy that he was, that he was implicating and involving himself in, he found himself then away from God and unable to come back. It is at this point that God then took the initiative to make it possible for a restoration of communion between the eternal God and his creature whom he had made. This is where we see that salvation is ultimately totally of God. Man is not able to establish it. If man is to know God, God must do something for him. God must do the thing that man cannot do and move to him. Now, we get this illustrated in, in the life of Israel, because you will remember that it was not so much that Israel sought God as it was that God chose Israel, that God sought Israel, that God went after Israel. One of the most fascinating chapters in the scripture to me is the 16th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. It's a chapter that I don't think I ever heard anybody really preach from, and it's a chapter that I don't find that many people ever look at. But it is basically a statement of the philosophy of history of Israel as far as Ezekiel is concerned. Let me read for you just a little. Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abomination." And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Your origin and your nativity is of the land of the Canaanites. The Amorite was your father, and your mother was a Hittite. And as for your nativity, in the day that you were born, your navel was not cut, neither were you washed in water for cleansing. You were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. No, I pitied you to do any of these unto you, to have compassion upon you, but you were cast out in the open field in the loathsomeness of your person in the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said unto you, In your blood live. Yea, I said unto you, In your blood live. I caused you to increase even as the growth of the field. And you did increase and grew up, and you came to excellent beauty. 
Your breasts were fashioned and your hair was grown, yet you were naked and bare. Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, and behold, the time was the time of love, I spread my skirt over you and covered you. Yea, I swore unto you and entered into a covenant with you, saith the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I washed you with water, I cleansed away your uncleanness, I anointed you with oil, I clothed you with richly woven work, and shod you with the best of skin and fur, and I wound fine linen about your head and covered you with silk. I decked you with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon your hands and a chain upon your neck. Now, it's a most interesting story. What he says is that Israel was not a thing of attraction and beauty, but it was like a babe that was not wanted. He said your mother was an Amorite and your father was a Hittite, which means that you were a half-breed, and you see that neither of these really qualified her for membership in the elect or chosen people among the Jews. And he said, when you were born, your parents did not want you, neither your father nor your mother, and took you without the normal routines of caring for a newborn babe and cast you into the wilderness and left you to die. And then when you were left to die, I passed and put my cloak over you, took you, washed you, cleansed you, and then caused you to grow until you were a beautiful young lady and then when you were a beautiful young lady, I dressed you with the finest of clothing and ornaments, and then I married you to myself. Now, you see, the picture is of the one who could have had many other choices, and the one that he chose would be the last that anyone would ever expect. But that was exactly the one that was chosen. Now, as you go through Scripture, one of the things that is very clear is that for God to be with me is a far more complicated procedure than I tend naturally to think it is. Most of us feel that God should be fairly well pleased to have a relationship with the likes of us. But as you go through Scripture, all of the Scriptures indicate that there was a basic incompatibility between us and a basic unattractiveness within us, and that reestablishment of that relationship destroyed in the fall, that the reestablishment of that relationship was not easy, but it was done only through the active grace and mercy of God. So you see, here is the biblical picture that it is God who comes to us when we wouldn't come to him, neither because we would not want to, and when we couldn't come to him because we were not attractive enough to come to him. But he, looking upon us, has loved us and has chosen us for himself. Now, this is the biblical picture of election, that when we didn't merit it, he looked at us and he wanted us. Now, how does God establish this relationship, and what is the character of this relationship when he initiates something whereby he can live and dwell with us? Emmanuel, God with us. One of the beautiful things to me is the way the Old and the New Testament fit together. 
And I hope that if you do not get anything else out of the courses that you have here at Asbury concerning Scripture, I hope that one of the things that you get is the basic unity of Scripture. That God does not change as the centuries and the millennia pass, and that his basic principles do not change. And that you can read the Old Testament for New Testament dispensational inspiration the same way the ancient Hebrew could read it, because it is the same God, and it is the same basic problem in Genesis 4 that it is in 1971. And that problem is how God can be with me. You will remember that in the Old Testament, it is pictured for us dramatically and graphically in the establishment of the worship center in Israel. When God brought Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt, and brought them into the wilderness, he took a great deal of time to explain to them how he wanted to live with them and how he wanted to be with them. And so you will remember The first person in the scripture who is listed as being spirit-filled was a man who basically was an artist and a craftsman. The first man who was spirit-filled was not an evangelist or a prophet or a missionary. I was interviewing a man not long ago in uh, prospects of hiring him for a position in the fine arts. And we were talking about uh, Christians in relation to culture and Christians in relation to the fine arts. And so as we sat and talked, I finally looked at him as he said he was very interested. It was interesting that when his recommendations came through, one of his university professors said about him, this man is different from most of our other students in that he is an overt Christian. He said it was so obvious at first that I was sure that it was an act. But he said, after having him in my classes for a while, he said, I find that it isn't an act. It seems to be very genuine. So I knew that he had a basic interest in Christian, in the relationship of Christ and the art. And so I looked at him and I said, "Uh, do you know who the first person in the scripture was who was listed as being filled with the Spirit? So he and his wife began to cite the people, you know, like Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Enoch and the rest, but it isn't. The first one who is mentioned as being specifically as being filled with the Spirit was Bezalel, whose business was to construct the tabernacle, whose business was to construct the tent of worship where God dwells. So that from the beginning of time, the best of spiritual grace and the finest of the arts were supposed to be united. And I remember how he looked at me wide-eyed, and I knew that he had never heard that before. Now, just a little item of information, but uh, some of these little items are helpful sometimes to give us a perspective. Now, Bethlehem's business was as an artist, as a craftsman, as an esthete, to build a structure in which God could dwell that would be appropriate, suitable for God, because God wanted to live right in the midst of his people. And so you will remember that the tabernacle was built. It was a tent of skin. Now, as you and I read that story, that seems strangely inappropriate to us now. But you must remember that every Hebrew was living in a tent of skin, too. And you have in that sense almost the parable of the incarnation, that God wants to dwell where we dwell, and that God wants to live under the circumstances that we live under. 
God wants that kind of identification with us. And he was not too good to live in the best of what they lived in. And so the tabernacle was built. You remember, I am sure, from the general outlines of the structure of that tabernacle. The center of it was a place that was called the Holy of Holies. You could translate it as the most holy place, because the Hebrew has no superlative, but it says, uh, it uses a genitival relationship to establish a uh, superlative. It, it really says the Holy of the Holies. And if it is the holy of the holies, then it is the most holy place. Now, do you remember what was in that most holy place? The central object was what is translated as an ark. Now, most of us are not sure what an ark was, but in this case, it was simply a box. And it was well built out of the best of wood. It was plated with gold, and on each end of it, there was a chair of them fixed. And in the midst was simply the open place on top of the box, which could have been used, some scholars felt, was symbolical of a seat, a chair, or a throne where God dwelt. This was his habitation in the midst of Israel. And so here between the cherubim, on top of this box he sat, gold-plated. And in the midst of that box there were certain objects. And those objects, to me, are very revealing about the matter of Emmanuel, God being with me. In the ark, if you will remember, you will find that, uh, well, first, before I mention what is in it, notice the name that was used for the ark. It was called the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant. And both terms are used. Now, the the, the word covenant interests me. Because here in the center of God's people, in the central place where God dwelt, and in the center of that central place, the central object was an ark of a covenant. Now, here we find God's intent toward you and me. You know, uh, when I come to God, the thing I instinctively feel is that I ought to make some promises to him. I think there is something about us that when we begin to get religious, we tend to begin to make promises. Have you ever made vows that you never kept? There is something awesome enough about God. There is something numinal enough about him. There is something holy enough about him. There is something different enough about him. That when I come into his presence, I feel deferential enough that I ought to do something. And so my tendency is to bind myself by obligation. Well, now, the interesting thing is that God said before we ever felt any obligation to bind ourselves to him, he wanted to obligate himself to us. And the first half of that covenant is not one that comes from us, but it is one that comes from him. You will notice in that passage in Ezekiel, it was not the babe who looked up and said, I need help. It was the Lord who came by and said, yes, you do need help. And I will extend it. Now, it is interesting that in the covenant, the initiative in this covenant comes from the Lord. Long before we have ever felt 
our need to obligate ourselves to him, he has wanted to obligate himself to us. I've never been able to go through the scripture and dig all of that out. I'd like to sometimes. But it shows up in the most intriguing places. Do you remember the verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now I can understand in the light of Christ's death the faithfulness of God in forgiving, but why is it just for him to forgive me? Yet this is what John is saying. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That there is something right about him forgiving me. And of course, now this is based upon the fact that Christ has died for me. And if I plead the merits of the shed blood of Christ, then it is just, it is right for God to forgive me. Why is it right? Because there is something within the heart of God that longs to obligate himself to me. And there you are, Emmanuel. God wants to be with me. Very different. A lot of problems for God to be with me. But the only hope of that being fulfilled is that prior commitment of God to where he longs to be with me. So the central thing in this in this holy of holies, in this central worship place, in this tabernacle, is an ark of covenant. It is a symbol of a covenant in which God says, I want to be your God, and I will, if you will be my people. Now, uh, I hope I've made that clear enough that you see that it's God who wants to obligate himself first. All right. Now, what is the basis of this covenant where then I look at him and say, I'm ready to obligate myself to you. And then the two of us can walk out together and the two of us can go down through life together and my life can be Emmanuel. God with us. Or Emmanuel. God with me. Now, there you find the big crux. Because in the midst of this box were two tablets. And do you remember what they were? They were the two tables of the law. And God says, we will enter into a covenant, and this is the symbol of the covenant. This is my throne, and under my throne, I will put the things that are the basis of our relationship. And there he put the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Now, you know, this is the reason that to me, any discussions of the Ten Commandments being relative, this is completely uh, academic. Because this is God saying, if you want to know Emmanuel, if you want this kind of relationship, I want a covenant with you, but the covenant that I will establish will be built around this decalogue. And if you go through Scripture, you will find that every time that God comes to man, somewhere in the midst of their communion, there is a moral law. Whether it's with Adam and Eve, don't touch that tree. Or whether it's with a rich young ruler, you remember the commandments. Keep them. 
And when he's mentioned those and says he's kept them, Jesus looks back and says, uh, uh, go sell what you've got and give it to the poor. Or whether it's the woman taken in adultery, he says, go and sin no more. Or whether it's with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus reads his mind and says, everything that I've stolen, I've paid back, and I've paid it back fourfold. Now, this is, this is basic. And in the 20th century church, this is pretty well lost. I read a report the other day from one of our major denominations on some of the social problems that we face, and it dealt with such things as abortion and premarital sex and homosexuality, and it went on down the line. And as you read, and as you read between the lines, it became obvious that the basic belief of the people who wrote that document believed that God accepts us because we're his creatures. And that his acceptance of us is on the basis of our creaturehood or our sonship rather than upon the basis of any moral relationship. I want to say that in Scripture, whether it is in the book of Leviticus or Numbers or Exodus or whether it is in the book of Hebrews or 1 John, God wants to redeem me, and God wants to bind himself in a covenant to me. If any man is outside of a covenantal relationship to God, it is because that man has refused God's proposal. But at the heart of that proposal are those two tables of stone. You find it in passages like uh, John. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, the apostle of love was the one who spoke the strongest. You find passages like in 1 John, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. And the covenant is there. And it works. We have fellowship, communion, one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Or you take a passage like in 1 John 3, where he says that whosoever committed sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and that in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, and whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. This is the tender John. I've always been awed at the wisdom of God in that he let tough old Paul, forensic old Paul, legalistic old Paul, write 1 Corinthians 13. And that he let the tender John write the passages like this that are so pointed and so convicting. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not the truth. Because in this covenant between God at this end and me at the other end, there is a moral standard. Now, with that moral standard, you say then, how can a fellow like you or me ever have communion with him? Which gets right to the heart of the problem of that Emmanuel, isn't it? One of the things that is interesting to me is the way the Jews wrangled with that. Because you will remember, before Moses got down from the mountain, they'd broken the law. And Moses turned to God and said, wipe them out because they're a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious people. And, uh, or at least God said he was going to do it. And Moses said, if you do, wipe me out and give me a, and, and, because I'm one with them. And the greatest preacher who's ever lived knows his own identity with the most sinful congregation to whom he has ever preached. But it's interesting that the Jews had a tradition that said that, you know what was in that box? The first tables of the law, not the second one. You remember when Moses came down from the mountain and he took them and threw them down and they broke Jewish tradition says that it was the broken ones that they put in there. Which means that part of the witness of that Ark of the Covenant is that it is possible for a man who has broken that law to have communion with God. Now, whether it was the broken ones or not, it is interesting that there is a word used for the top of that box on which the Lord sat as he communed with people around those Ten Commandments, it's interesting that that word is a word which is can mean covering or it can mean forgiveness. Because the Hebrew word kafar, which means to cover, like the lid on a box, is also one of the words which is used for forgiveness. So that what he is saying is that this covenant is possible because somewhere between me, the sinner, and God, the Holy One, in the presence of that law, there is forgiveness. And that very lid on that covenant was the promise of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of the Savior. And it's interesting that the New Testament calls him that. And in one of those strange, happy accidents of translation, Martin Luther, when he was translating the Old Testament and the New, when he came to describe that ark, called that caporis, that lid, over the law, he called it the Gnadenstuhl. Excuse my pronunciation. Last time I tried some French up here, Miss Julie taught me the next day. I did it one evening and the next morning when Dr. Nelson was here. And so she called me the next day and said, I don't know what happened between evening and morning, but uh, I'd give you a C- minus for pronunciation in the morning instead of a D-plus for pronunciation in the evening. So I always have a group down here who, uh, uh, who are ready to help me out. But anyway... The word Gnadenstuhl, really, its translation in English is mercy seat. And what a happy translation. 
that the place where God meets us is at the mercy seat. Which is the only place that he can meet the likes of you and me. Where there is forgiveness and covering for our sins. Now, very quickly, because our time's going to run away, before you get through the Old Testament, you get a promise of something that is very different and new. And sometime you should sit down as you think about Asbury's commitment to the doctrine of entire sanctification and chase through the scripture and find that the Old Testament prophet, promise, the Old Testament prophecy in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 33 or 31 is that in the new covenant, God is going to meet his people and God is going to take that law out of that box and meet us no longer around that. But he's going to write this in our hearts. So that there is the possibility of my meeting him not simply as a penitent sinner in need of grace, but it is possible also for me to meet him with that grace not only having covered my sin, but that grace having so changed my heart that now my will is to do the will of my Father and to enjoy that will under the gracious influences of his Holy Spirit. Now it's beautiful to me the way the New Testament fits these things together and the highest level of grace is put in the light of the basic problem of a man who needs to meet God and God seeks him. But there is a basic moral problem between the two. And God deals with that and brings him to the place where what happened in the fall has been undone and now the heart of man can be one with the will of God. Now, there were a couple of other things that were in that uh, ark, and all I'm going to have to have time to do here is uh, to mention them extremely briefly. Uh, I think maybe one minute for one and one minute for the other before that bell rang. One of the things in that ark was a golden pot, and in it was some manna that had been saved. Are you aware that the scripture says that the Hebrews ate manna for 40 years? Have you ever read John 6 in relation to Jesus and the manna? When he had fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish, you remember they came back to him the next day and said, uh, do this again. And he said, I know you. You seek the bread of this world. But he said, the bread that you ought to seek is the manna, the bread that comes down from heaven. Moses gave you manna in the wilderness, but now I am come and I am the true and the living manna. And except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye shall have no part in me. Now there is another illustration of how these two covenants, these two testaments are tied together. On what did the people of God live for those 40 years? They lived on the bread which God gave to them. Now what should my daily sustenance be? 
My daily sustenance should be the Lord Jesus himself as I feed upon him. This comes to us in two ways, one symbolically. It is no accident that the central ritual of the Christian church, with this I'm through, is the Lord's Supper, in which you take a wafer and take a cup, symbolical of the, of the heavenly manna which is provided for you. But how does it come to me in daily routine? Here it is. And it is as I take this and live in it and feed upon it that I know the life of God and live with him, Emmanuel, because he has become my daily portion.